I'm going to report on this computer. So welcome everybody. I see Tori is about to join us. Um, and I have gotten permission to record and the recording will be shared from those that I know will be speaking and the rest of you just know we're going to be sharing this widely across the world among the other TMT, Telehealth and Medicine Today, online peer-reviewed journal, um, other ambassadors around the world. So my point of view is that I call it co-optition, meaning obviously we have competitor healthcare organizations on the screen and we'd like to cooperate and we will continue to compete. So you share what you want to share and you don't share what you don't want to share. We want to learn as much as we can from each other, particularly in the world of telehealth. Um, we want to share learnings as much as you're willing um, and hopefully make the use of telehealth, particularly in the, in the COVID world, more effective. So I will quickly bring up the agenda and then I'm going to pass it off to Tori Sanad, who hopefully will see her face soon, who's the publisher and founder of TMT. Um, share screen. And I want to show the agenda, which is right here. So hopefully you all saw this earlier today. Um, we started at 1130. This is to learn from each other and also to network, obviously, inside these meetings. And hopefully you'll create connections among all of us outside these meetings. Corey's going to talk about what TMT is all about. And if anybody's interested in helping out or contributing to the journal, he would be very happy about that. We will do introductions. There's a lot of us. So as you can tell, I run tight meetings. And if you don't like it, you can tell me. Don't be so tight, Dan, and I will take the feedback very well. But hopefully, we will limit our introductions one minute per person, including me, with who you work for, what's your role, and what you want to get out of this meeting of this group of people. Then we'll have, today we'll have, assuming we go according to timing, we'll have four different people or groups present on what telehealth looks like pre-COVID and what it looks like now, what's working well, what's not. Just 10 minutes each. They might have slides, they might not. They don't have to, it's not a paid position. We'll have about 15 or 20 minutes wide open discussion. And we'll talk briefly about, are you interested in meeting again? Are you interested in my topic about what we should measure to motivate parents to reimburse? And that would be the agenda. I am going to pass it to Tori, and I will stop sharing. Tori, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, but I can't see you. Are you showing? Yeah, no, 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 that's, 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 yeah. I, I think I, I shared with you, I have um, no desire for um, any of these platforms to map my face without my permission, so. And I just have to say, I will always tease people, always, 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 with a big smile on my face, when we're meeting about telehealth, when people won't show their face, I just think it's hilarious. Like, what happens if you told a doctor you have to show your face and they said they don't want it? Tori, it's fine. Go right ahead. <laughs> Thanks. And um, good afternoon, all. It, it may be good morning over there still, but it's afternoon here. I'm in Stanford, uh, Connecticut. Um, so real quickly, I just wanted to share, and uh, I don't know if they're on the screen because I'm in my little PowerPoint presentation here. I can share it if you'd like me to. Do you want me to share what you sent to me? Um, yeah, uh, unless you want to send it to, uh, to folks afterward, but at least there's, um, yeah, no, either way works, so don't worry. 
Okay, go ahead and talk, and I'll bring it up as I can when I find so, it. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, there are little, uh, our company is called uh, Partners in Digital Health, and we uh, publish two journals. One is the Telehealth and Medicine Today journal, and the other is the uh, uh, groundbreaking blockchain in healthcare today. Um, we are endorsed by the, uh, both of the journals, actually, the IEEESA, the ATA, and um, also another NGO, uh, and this is the Telehealth and Medicine Journal only. But our portfolio consists of these two peer review journals, um, a, an annual conference, and uh, that's called Converge to Accelerate, or Conv2x for short. And we're uh, actually working on that now. We plan a, um, a two-day symposium in, in Q4. I don't know if anyone is on the line that may be interested in, uh, in participating in that. Um, but we're setting it up a little differently. This year, of course, it's remote. Um, and probably next year, too, frankly, the way things are looking. Um, but we have six topics that we're going to be taking three-hour deep dives in because uh, everyone I've spoken to is a little tired of this fluff, um, half an hour to an hour long. So um, it's kind of more think tank oriented and uh, definitely deep, deeper dives. Um, and along with that, also a pitch competition, which we are foregoing this year, again, because we're, uh, we're remote. So um, quickly, uh, uh, and I think uh, Jan may have told you about our ambassador program, but we have about uh, 20, 25 chapters or so around the world and throughout the uh, states now um, for both of the journals and that program is uh, growing. Um, and we're very, very pleased indeed. And uh, really the, uh, the mission for each ambassador is to identify gaps uh, locally and regionally and fill those gaps with educational programming and um, networking. And uh, we bring them back to the journal and publish them, which is one of the reasons we're uh, audio taping this session, for example. So we can share it with the community at large, which is ever so important, but even more importantly, I think, and we see this uh, you know, over the last couple of months uh, during the pandemic, what, what we need is to communicate and communicate research and findings and outcomes and, and share and you know, the notion of reproducibility um, and uh, uh, and tracing and so on and so forth. I mean, that's all bubbled to the surface now and ever so important. And telehealth is uh, one of the threads that weaves all that together um, right now, I believe. So uh, this is what we're doing with our ambassadors and chapters and programming and most certainly the, uh, the journal. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Our editorial mission. Um, uh, primarily assisting uh, in building knowledge and consensus to deploy and scale safe delivery services to achieve sustainable outcomes for affordable, accessible, and quality care for health consumers around the globe. My bottom line always ends with, okay, how does this impact the patient? How does it impact the patient's 
pocketbook um, and things trickle down very, very slowly, if at all. But we try to bring with our editorial mission, it full circle, um, reporting wherever we can and wherever available, because we do know there are silos and Jan mentioned them uh, just earlier. Um, you know, uh, how the financial impact and economic impact of these initiatives and programs and pilots and um, so on and so forth. So we do try to bring all that into the, uh, into the journal, if you will. We are uh, published quarterly and that's uh, January, April, July, and November. Um, it is a peer review journal. There is a double blind peer review. Uh, and I'm thinking what else uh, there is. Um, if you have any questions, definitely ask Jen or uh, myself in that case. And my email, you can always direct email me. I'm happy to answer any questions. We have three editors-in-chief at present. Lyle Berkowitz. Tori, I'm going to cut you off just to stay on our agenda. I, I, oh. think, you, I think you did fabulous. And oh, yes. um, please stay on as long as you can. Uh, no, actually, I have um, another uh, webinar I have okay. to go over for, um, for the IEEE. Do you mind terribly if, uh, if I sign off? Is that OK? I'm so sorry. It's OK. Oh, thank you so much. All right, well, good Sorry. luck. I'm so glad um, that you've all gotten together and thank you so much for this time. Much appreciated. It's all being recorded. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, Tori. All right, so next on the agenda is for each of us to take one minute to introduce yourself because a lot of this is about networking. So I'm gonna, I'm just to not make it completely random, we'll go in name order by alpha first name except that I will start, so I'll call on you one at a time. So your, your title, the company, and what you want to get out of this. Um, I'm Dan Ground. I am semi-retired. I was the director of virtual care at Kaiser Permanente until three years ago, and I did that work for seven years. started in 2010. Um, I started my career as a pediatric physical therapist, still a clinician, and I'm still in touch with tons and tons and tons of people at KP. Half of them are with KP still, like Ted. I'm gonna meet Ted Plain, but half of them are not with KP anymore. And I'm obviously still very passionate about telehealth. What I'm helping to get out of this is to help us make um, telehealth more effective in a measurable way. And it's first to start measuring, and then to look at what we're learning and say what makes sense to do, what doesn't make sense to do. How can we convince Medicare to keep it? So, um, Bruce, Bruce Sharp, I don't think you're on. Elizabeth, are you there? You're on mute if we can't hear you, Elizabeth. Never mind. Okay, um, is Fred Thomas here? Gerard, he said he was coming. Okay, Gerard, you're next. Hello, Gerard Frenzy, a manager for telehealth at Children's Hospital Colorado. Uh, I joined this group because I certainly enjoy what Jan does in collaboration and getting people together. It's my favorite thing is to have academic conversations and learn from others. So that's why I am here. Thank you, Gerard. Next, I have Jennifer Thumbum. Jennifer, we can't see you. Jennifer, are you there? Yeah, I am. Hello. 
Uh, Jennifer Thunblum, I'm with Kaiser Permanente. I am actually a part of the um, IT team at Kaiser in Colorado. I um, focus a lot on digital innovation and telehealth technologies. And to say that I partnered closely with Jennifer when I was there, um, we were almost together daily. Is that fair, Jennifer? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, John Savage. Hey everybody. Uh, so I'm John Savage. I'm the uh, founder and president of Care and Location. So we're an independent Colorado telehealth company, predominantly uh, operating under a model of building hardware configurations, uh, getting patients connected through software, and providing clinical services. So we either do this as a package or a la carte. Uh, I'm an ER doc. Uh, I got into telehealth several years ago, um, dabbling in American Well, Teladoc, and MD Live. And then uh, that was in 2015, 2016, started uh, designing telehealth software. 2017, started designing telehealth kits and carts and, and backpacks. Um, and so I'm also the, the vice chair of the M Health Technology and Distance Learning uh, Special Interest Group at the ATA. And I'm happy to be here. I know many of you. Uh, I think it's great that, that you know telehealth is still a relatively small space. It's a team sport, not an individual sport. So happy to share um, what we can learn from each other. Thank you, Dr. John and Laura, Laura Newman. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Laura Newman. I uh, work for Routinify and do business development. I'm grateful to Susan Prolt for inviting me to this meeting. Uh, I know several of you. Um, I'm here today uh, because our company specializes in telecare for aging adults and I really value the time, expertise, and guidance that I get from people who have been in the telehealth and telemedicine space for several years. And I uh, enjoy learning and uh, being guided by folks like you. It means a lot to me. Thanks for having me today. Nice to have you, Laura. And Michael Dean. Mike Dean. Hi there. Uh, my name is Mike Dean. I work for Kaiser Permanente. I'm with the KP Innovation team. I work as an innovation consultant. I know many of you uh, through the work that I do at Catalyst, um, managing the operations of the innovation lab there. And so it's good to see a lot of familiar faces and good to see many of you for the first time in at least four and a half months. Uh, I partnered with Jennifer, I partnered with Jan in the past, so that's my uh, plug for her because otherwise she'll remind me to put that out there. And I've also uh, connected with Dr. Pauline who's uh, going to introduce himself here uh, in a little bit. Uh, but I'm mostly here for additional networking and learning and I'm always uh, considering collaboration opportunities. So it's good to see everyone. And nice to have you. Thanks. And Paul Murphy. Hi, Paul Murphy. I've been in the uh, Denver market since 94, initially as a paramedic before switching over to healthcare administration side. Uh, telehealth experience over a decade, including in touch health uh, prior to them being acquired. And then uh, last five years with uh, HCA Health One in Denver market before they went through massive layoffs. So I was part of that process in November. So last year I've been going through consulting to Prime Health, to current location, to MSU as well. Uh, either on uh, structural type of things or teachers and classes from there. And for myself here with this group, just want to remain involved in telehealth and virtual care. And I know a lot of the folks that are on this group as well. So I look forward to collaborating and thanks, Jeff, for putting this together. Thanks, Paul. Good to have you. And Peter? 
Uh, hi, my name is Peter Hines. I'm a, an architect and real estate developer. Um, my interests in telehealth go back about 10 years as we've been working to incorporate telehealth services into affordable assisted living. Uh, we're ready, getting ready within about two to three weeks to go live on a telehealth project here in Montbello at the corner of Peoria and Andrews Drive where I repurposed a uh, Lutheran Elementary School into affordable assisted living. And we've got fiber optics to the building where we'll be able to do synchronous telehealth. And we'll have um, a pretty cool program where we'll have uh, remote patient monitoring in every bedroom. And then we have a central telehealth hub uh, that will be able to do exams. Um, so it's a first where we're working within a, a faith-based organization to deliver affordable assisted living that is uh, really focused around telehealth as a service to the community. And, um, and I really think it's cool. I love telehealth. I think it's going to be a really neat, neat outcome to this thing. Uh, and like I said, we're, we're about two weeks from going live and about four weeks from moving in residence. And um, you, I just want to say thanks. Yeah, I'll say thanks to Dr. Savage. Um, just to let you guys know, John was an advisor to this project a few years back. And Susan Peralt is um, currently involved uh, to help out as well. Thank you, Peter. Nice to have you. And that's a really, it sounds really cool. Peter is one of the people on the screen yeah. that I don't know. I just realized, Chris, I've skipped you, Chris Herbst, because I had an alpha order of those that confirmed, and you were maybe. Anyway, so I'll get you and Elizabeth to introduce yourself at the end. Uh, okay. Sarah Gallo. Hi, I'm Sarah Gallo. Uh, I'm a PA uh, in primary care, which just transitioned out of. Um, I am now program manager for Prime Health um, and their telehealth uh, initiatives, and I also work with John. Uh, Dr. Savage uh, as one of his um, colleagues for his company too, doing telehealth and trying to build his um, empire. But uh, in this space and, and completely immersing myself and excited to meet all of you. Nice to have you, Sarah. Um, Susan. Can't hear you. I don't see a mute sign, but we hear you, and I heard you before. Can you hear me now? Yes. I was double muted. How was that? So we do, I know, we do telehealth implementation. Um, the name of our company is Mobile Health Technology with Solutions. We do education. Um, we've been involved for about three to five years. I've got an extensive background in project management. That's why we decided to focus on telehealth. Just for the group itself, um, I know majority of you guys, but for this, group coming together, one of the things I'm hoping to get out is that we can look at some KPIs, make some changes in telehealth, and be a part of driving that based on where we are with pandemic. So I'm pretty excited with the wealth of knowledge and extensive that we have in the group. So thanks. Thank you, Susan. And Ted Pauline. Hi, I'm Ted Pauline. I'm an internist. I've been with uh, Kaiser since 1994. I semi-retired last year, but the uh, COVID pandemic has uh, created a bunch of new opportunities both within and outside of KP. Um, and I partnered with Jan many years ago. We have done all kinds of uh, 
what I call virtual care, which is beyond just telemedicine to all kinds of virtual care modalities over the years within Kaiser. And I, I, I am, even with these introductions, what I want to get out of this is I've already gotten a bunch out of it because of all the plethora of ideas and, and innovations that people are already doing. I'd love to partner with everybody because what you're doing uh, is this sounds so fascinating. So I appreciate Jan pulling this all together. Thank you, Ted. And last but not least, Terry, Terry Casterton. Uh, hi, everyone, and thanks, Jan, for putting this together. Um, Terry Casterton out of SEL Health, where I'm the Director of Innovation and Virtual Health. I've been in health IT since I started my career too many years ago that I'm not feeling as comfortable mentioning how long anymore. Uh, started on the implementation side, working for Cerner, and then moved to the provider side. Um, and I've had various roles with what was then Exempla and is now SEL Health, all in this kind of liaison between technology operations, quality, and strategy. And I made the leap into strategy, which is where innovation virtual health is housed within SEL Health a few years ago. Um, virtual health or telehealth it used to be a little part of what we do and now it's a humongous part of what we do and that's part of what I want to why I'm here today is to understand what's working for everyone else what's not working as someone else mentioned I'm forgetting right now this is a team sport and I think that's a fantastic analogy so looking to build the team so we can figure this out together and by the way, Ted, um, Terry knows Cara Beatty, who's been at SEL for a long time. Yep, very much so. Okay, um, we will now hear from Elizabeth Krupinski and Chris Earp, who are with Southwest Telehealth Resource Center, based out of Arizona. As I said earlier, I'm about to start work for that group as the Colorado liaison. And so next month's meeting, assuming we have a next month's meeting, if we're still interested, um, they'll be presenting on what the Southwest Telehealth Resource Center is about, all that. But for now, Elizabeth, are you there? Okay, Chris. Well, I, <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Chris. Chris Earp. I'm Chris Earp Stewart. Um, I many of these names look familiar, but I'm with the Southwest Telehealth Resource Center, based down in Tucson, Arizona. We're HRSA funded to provide technical assistance to startups and to people who are doing telemedicine to take it to the next level in the four quarter states plus Nevada. And we've been doing this since 2009. Um, I've been with the Arizona Telemedicine Program since 1996, so it's been a, been a while. So, and we are happy to um, have Jan on board with us um, for at least the next few months or next nine months. So, welcome aboard, Jan, thank and you, thank you for including us today. And Elizabeth is a, the the. Um, co-director of the Southwest Telehealth Resource Center. She is based actually out of Emory University. She um, was at the University of Arizona for oh, 30 years and then um, retired and went over to Emory and is, is working there, but we kept her on contract. And so she's been, hasn't missed a beat. This telecommuting has worked for her very well for many, many years prior to the COVID. So um, thanks again, Jan. Elizabeth, one more chance. Are you there? Okay, so I just to tell you, tell you guys, and I am going to tell you how old I am. You can figure it out. I got my physical therapy degree from Emory University in 1980. Anyway, so I have a very soft spot in my heart for where she is a professor. 
Okay, so we're right on time. I think we're two minutes late. And again, feedback, welcome after the meeting or during the meeting. If I'm being too demanding or too controlling, say the word. I like to try to have meetings keep going. The idea is we're going to have four different people slash groups present 10 minutes each on what's going on with telehealth, what was pre-COVID, what's during COVID, um, and then 15 or 20 minutes for discussion and five minutes for now what do we do? Okay, everybody give me a thumbs up. You good with that? Can't see you, Paul, but I believe you're saying thumbs up. And Jennifer, and Mike, and Elizabeth, and Chris. Thank you. All right, and what I chose to do, I just decided that we'd go from small to large, with KP obviously being the largest. Just figuring KP probably has the most to talk about. So, and John says he probably won't take 10 minutes, but if you do, it's fine, John. But if you don't, you know, then the bigger SEL and um, children's might take a little longer time. Just try to do the best you can with 10 minutes each. So, um, John, are you, you're not gonna share slides, correct? I do not have slides. Got it. You go for it, Dr. John. <laughs> what do you do? What do you got? Sure. What do you got? Well, I mean, I, I have nothing. I have us talking. Um, so basically, again, just a little bit about care and location and kind of pre and, and post COVID. And so again, we're an independent Colorado telehealth services company. And traditionally, we've been focused on uh, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, rural, other underserved populations. And so in that capacity, we've essentially, we're a private company that's, you know, been operating on a, on a public health mission. And just, just a little background on just an example of some of the things that we've done, and I'll explain why this is important in, in a few minutes. But um, so we've worked on in rural health clinics, we've helped connect patients in areas where there is no provider to the care back here in Denver um, by both building the infrastructure and connecting through software to the providers here in Denver to make sure that parts of rural Colorado, predominantly the southeast corner, are getting the care they need. Um, we're working with the Office of Behavioral Health on a jail-based telehealth uh, project where we're installing telehealth equipment in 22 jails around the state. Um, I currently have something going with um, CCHA, so a, a uh, you know component of Colorado Medicaid, one of the rays to work on those that are overutilizing the ER, those with three plus visits in the past six months. And then lastly, and the one that many of you already knew, what, what got me into the building the hardware space is we have nurses uh, out on the streets of Denver with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. We designed telemedicine backpacks specifically for them to take care of patients. And the reason all this, you know, I bring this up is there's a lot of things going on and everybody knows that that telehealth has expanded rapidly but that wasn't always the case you know pre-covid um telehealth utilization was notoriously uh low you're a lot of the direct-to-consumer uh models and we also have a direct-to-consumer component the the utilization was pitiful and teledoc as an example had 20 has 20 something million lives under their umbrella um, and their utilization rates are generally sub 5%. And you get higher utilization rates in some of these employer-based programs. But in general, pre-COVID, like everything was, was pretty anemic. And similarly, on the, on the provider side of things, we have providers that are, I mean, you guys know all of us are, are in this in some way. We're resistant to change. Um, 
we were, we're very confused about how the reimbursement landscape is going to be. And in the past couple of years, there's been this slow trickle. So CMS has released all of these uh, changes. So they, they put out these um, virtual checking codes. The Support Act gets passed. Um, so there's been slow incremental changes over years, but there's not been a single sense of what, how to engage in telehealth. How does it get paid? How do I do this? So the utilization on both the patient side and the utilization on the provider side has been pretty anemic. So then COVID-19 comes around and we have what amounts to like an explosion. It, it affects all of our lives as individual people and it's affecting the telehealth space. So they're just like on this screen, we have a bunch of experts in the telehealth space. Well, that we're just a teeny little sliver of the entire population of, of healthcare entities that can that know that you know basically know what we're doing so this explosion occurs um, and then all of a sudden patients are jumping into the game and wanting to utilize telehealth not because they understand about understand telehealth not because they understand its benefits not because they know how to do it but it becomes a necessity they their family practitioners have um, you know, shut down their practices and they they don't know what else to do. They don't want to go to the ER anymore, um, which for me was, you know, a nice change, but they no longer want to go to the ER. So they start utilizing telehealth out of necessity. The same with the, the practitioners, the, the primary care doctors, they're resistant to telehealth. They don't understand the reimbursement structure. COVID-19 comes on and all of a sudden we're uh, basically shoving them into something out of necessity. And I think a lot of them still to this day see it as a bridge. It's not re really, they don't see the, the value in it necessarily, but they see it as a way to maintain their patient population, maintain their, their connection and maintain some financial viability. But what we're starting to see is this kind of plateau and then a slow decline back to as offices reopen, as we get PPE, um, that the telehealth utilization. So again, a group like this um, that has the knowledge base, we're not, we're not the majority for sure. And so our gathering of knowledge and our ability to educate is, is really important. And so we have built patient education on the benefits of telehealth, uh, on how to utilize telehealth as a key part of your, your first visit. So if you're visiting us, I generally go through how to get a proper exam, how to conduct your own self-exam, how to, you know, what, what diagnostic devices should you have thermometers and blood pressure cuffs and those type of things available. And what we found um, pre and post COVID and with this rapid been increasing that our first-time patients that were visiting for necessity are now coming back as repeat patients not because of necessity but now because they understand how to do it why to do it and the benefits of it and similarly the providers um, that we've worked with uh, you know I just prior to this meeting I just got off a, a call with Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and so they just got a state grant um, so they were one of our initial uh, contracts back in 2018, and they're coming back in these provider groups and providers come back to us, not because again, it's not necessarily necessity anymore, but people are starting to realize the, the benefit of telehealth and what it can be used for and why to use it. 
<clears throat> but there's still some resistance and that resistance and you know I, I bring this up mainly because Tori was on too um, but a lot of us in the medical space are still hesitant we don't understand where telehealth is fully useful and, I, and I, in the urgent care space I'll use uh, sore throat as an example there's a whole set of guidelines on how to manage sore throat and I know this is an in-person in practice uh, necessarily, but this started with American Well utilizing the center criteria, which allows you to determine within a reasonable range what for, what's the percentage of likelihood of somebody having strep is. Those are all in-person, that's all in-person research, um, very well validated. All we have to do is take some of that existing research, reproduce it for a telehealth model. We're not designing a whole new research protocol, we're just taking what exists and, and turning it you know, 90 degrees a little bit and and publish that. And then you're gonna have a bunch of other providers saying, ah, I know that research, but now I see this research validates what, what I've been doing for years. Um, so I think again, a group like this uh, coming together to kind of share our experiences, maybe working together, because uh, I as an independent group don't have the massive volume that maybe SCL has, maybe Kaiser has. Um, and the connections that the University of Arizona has with, you know, with the Telehealth Resource Center. Um, so maybe we can work together on, on, you know, increasing the education, the knowledge base, and the acceptance. And, uh, and I think that's really, I'm, that was probably way less than 10 minutes, but that's really all I had to say. <laughs> so. You're, you're on mute, Jan. What I said was, that was perfect. And I hope you guys are okay with, I'm going to suggest that we leave our discussion and questions to the end so we have 15 or 20 minutes. If you want to put questions in the chat for us all to see, or just so you remember your questions, you might do that. And again, I'll run it my way today. And if you guys give me feedback that this was way too tight and way too managed, I'll take the feedback and do it differently next time. I'm going to propose, now we'll do Gerard from Children's, then we'll hear from um, Carrie from SEL, then you'll hear from Ted and me from KP. And then we'll have 15 or 20 minutes for discussion and questions. Okay, Gerard, you have the floor. Do you have slides? You're on mute. Thank you. I'm getting my slides ready here. Okay. Hello. Thank you so much. Allow me to share here. Please let me know if you see my slides. It's coming up. Yes, we see your slides. Yay. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so as I said before, I work at Children's Hospital Colorado. Our uh, vision statement is where telehealth becomes just excellent health care. Before COVID, just to kind of give you a lay of the land, um, I was really proud of our program. I've been with my department for five years, the hospital for 11. We averaged 50% uh, growth. Um, ED psych evaluations, subspecialty outpatient care was the primary mode. Uh, that was kept on expanding new projects all the time. It was really exciting. A thousand providers had signed up and were doing either regular or semi-regular uh, telehealth. And that was everything from speech therapy uh, all the way up to fetal cardiology, where you're looking at baby's heart inside of mom's belly from across the mountains. So really, you know, the gamut of things that you can do in telemedicine. And then uh, this was our dashboard. Uh, just a quick look at a little infographic. It's 
I was really proud of this, but of course it also reflects just how small of a program we had. Um, you know, 612 for the last quarter for MFM. This is fourth uh, report out for fourth quarter 2019. A good spread all around Colorado and customer service, ooh, 34 uh, survey results. 34 people fill out a survey and that gets on a chart. I mean, now of course that's pretty uh, small beans, but I was pretty proud that we actually had 34 people take time to give us a survey beforehand. And then we called it the pivot, where it was really moving from inpatient care, in-person ambulatory care to telemedicine. And I was very thankful that we had all the systems in place. We had an integrated video product into our EMR, which is Epic. Our product was video, vidyo. Uh, a lot of in-person trainings, but so the transition for the pivot was self-service videos. So training videos uh, for self-service uh, computer-based training modules, onboarded 1500 providers, had a whole lot of people join us for the interim. A lot of them have rolled back to their regular jobs, of course, but there was a lot of coordinating, a lot of hands that had to be in. So we just had project managers and process improvement people join us. Uh, clinical informaticists, it was a big learning for me, just how important it is to have an informaticist involved with your programs when it comes to a hospital. And we have two CMIOs, and so they were both heavily engaged. And all this, our medical director for the telehealth medicine department, she got deployed on, on Navy um, assignment. Uh, she's a doctor, and she was sent to New York City to help take care of people there. And so that was a pretty hard time uh, to lose such a key member of the team. Um, but we were resilient and uh, quite successful. So you see, we went from 616 in February up to 21,000 interactions peak in April. And we've seen it uh, as we, and we're calling it the reactivation. I understand different hospitals call it different things, uh, but we're seeing our, of course our telemedicine counts uh, drop, which is to be expected. We're doing more in-person things and uh, it's the appropriate move. I, I like, I think it was Janet who, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. It might've um, been Ted who mentioned 35% is the ideal number, you know, whatever that ideal balance of telemedicine is in the future. Um, paying close attention to what that's going to be um, and how to measure, how to set goals, how to make sure we retain the appropriateness of telemedicine where it's right and, of course, uh, you know, change where it's not right. But I love this graph. And, of course, then there's other fun ways to show just the big change that you did. Um, our, our long history of telemedicine, um, I joined in roughly 2015, uh, late 2014, where we had 513 visits. Then, of course, in comparison, the 60,000 we've had so far this year. Just fun to show these numbers. I'm proud of it. Our current project list, I think this might be the topical conversation that might, um, you know, I think often the best cover, the best chats and side conversations happen. Oh, you're working on this. I'm working on this. Let's talk about that more. And so this is what I wanted to show this group. Uh, Preclinic uh, and tech check process. How we get people on board in a self-service manner so we don't have to delay clinic or have problems or have things break. Um, it's really, it, it's a continual issue. Uh, non-provider telehealth build. Our systems are not really built for non-providers and all those connections that are kind of soft and gentle and uh, coordinated care. So uh, we're continuing to work on that. Workflow optimization, WebRTC, um, our video product, um, it can have uh, browser-based video, but um, we didn't have it turned on. Uh, 
because we didn't need it. And now, of course, it's a glaring thing. And uh, it's quite a bit of build and it's quite a bit of work, um, especially when you haven't done it before. So it's something that we're working on. Uh, cleaning up our license and our tenants where we had different segments to our video product because of different needs. And now since it's a, a change in it's just the way we deliver care. We have to change it to all in one platform so that the one desktop uh, computer will talk to a video room across the way. Um, just gonna be a need. We have GetWell and I think we're really interested and happy to have that integrated in with video and Ironbow. We already have some bedside um, video conferencing where we have robust room systems in the inpatient rooms. Uh, but being able to have it connect in a more automated fashion, present to the families a little bit nicer. It's just something that we noticed we need to do. Closed captioning. I don't know if that rings a bell for everyone else, but um, that's been a big uh, gap and someone kind of hard to resolve. Um, so I'd be interested if anyone's talking about that. Uh, hybrid, we, we call a hybrid visit is when they do come in person, but we have some of our clinicians still connect over telehealth because maybe we should maintain social distancing in our clinic space. And if they see the GI doctor, perhaps they should see the registered dietitian via telehealth just to keep the busyness of our clinic spaces a little bit lower. Uh, originating site fee. Um, it was interesting how some of the feds said, oh yeah, you can start charging originating site fee for at-home telemedicine. We haven't done it yet, but we keep on looking into it. I don't know if anyone's playing with that one, but it's an interesting conversation. Um, you know, there's like a nominal Q3014 hosting telemedicine at the home uh, for doing it. At, I'm sorry, hosting telemedicine at another facility or at a partner's facility or if your facility's hosting it. But when it's at the home, of course, we just wrote it off. But uh, given the significant um, financial impact this has had on the organization, um, given that there are some CMS uh, statements out there that you can maybe drop that charge, we're, we, we continue to look into it. On-demand assistance, a backup video plan. Just yesterday, we literally had a fire in our MDF, which is uh, the entrance from the data and electricity from the world, literally a fire in there. And so that took down our, our video conference systems for about an hour. Um, it was interesting. So, you know, how do we get better backup plans, um, not have to reschedule clinics or transition them to phone calls? Um, home technology, we did get the FCC grant. Um, and so we're going through some vendor selection, which is very exciting to finally get into that because there's an upfront fee associated with uh, putting technology in the home and being able to do ambulatory care for those families. Um, scope of practice for nursing, just because now we have telemedicine was a lot more. The doctor would just do a few things more than they might normally do. But now that it's a big program and um, over 50% of the way we're doing clinics, um, we, we need to have those other roles involved. And so we need to talk about nursing scope and MA scope on your ambulatory clinics. And also, especially for the inpatient world, is it okay for a nurse to present or an uh, MA to present um, a patient using um, otoscopes and stethoscopes? Um, behavioral health symptom tracker, just online web-based tools to try and improve and keep patients away in automated fashions. And of course, ED consultation, saving PPE. We go through so much PPE in the ED that uh, we're going to be putting some video systems in all the rooms so that all those check-ins that a doctor or nurse might need to do, they don't have to sub up, gown up every time. On issue, ongoing issues being addressed. So these are kind of the pain points. Uh, program documentation. We were very much an agile program before. You know, every once in a while someone will say, well, do you have documentation around that? And I said, I can show you workflow, but you know, that rich, this is how we do it as a core function, just building that out. It's a significant build, especially for all the variations and all the different clinics and how it all works. 
uh, pre-clinic and tech check for on-time clinic. It's a lot of focus. It's easy to say, well, we just need more people on the support line, which is going to be another uh, line here. But that's a hard thing to do, to hire more um, tech support people. So working on models of uh, self-support and uh, empowering our patients and families to be able to get into these things easier and not run into errors. And then, of course, early identification when there is going to be a problem so we can engage a person to prevent uh, delay or a customer service problem or you know just um, just yesterday I was watching a presentation by Sam Lipless I don't know if anyone else knows her but she was putting on her video um, I, I joined it and she had a great example of uh, if a half hour wait in an inpatient in a clinic is you know it happens but it's not that bad but a half hour wait in telehealth would seem like an eternity and so it's something you have to really account for um, closed captioning, like I said, just to really for um, deaf and hard of hearing where it's a gap, um, especially the vendors. They don't have easy ways to do it. Zoom has an API, but uh, those companies that will go into that API, it's all automated. They won't sign a BAA and they're not HIPAA compliant. So the ones that are HIPAA compliant is so expensive, $99 an hour to $165 an hour. And it's, it's just a hard thing to solve. I'd be interested if anyone's doing this really well. Uh, consenting for pediatrics and EPIC, because uh, pediatrics is always unique. I mean, 14 to 17 has different rules. Family planning things have different rules. It's always a continuing issue. And so we're finding our system since we're doing so many more clinic, so much more clinic uh, on telehealth. And like I mentioned, browser-based video conferencing Chromebook. Uh, the cost of video, um, since we've had such expansion, our costs have gone quite a bit up. And you kind of ask, is that really is that right? I mean, should I really be spending $200,000 a year on video conferencing? Um, is that the right number? Matter of fact, we had to negotiate down to $200,000 because they wanted me to pay $400,000. And you're just continually asking that question. Is this really, you know, are there better vendors out there? Are there better products out there? Is there cheaper products that will still do the same job? And of course, integration in the bedside, really trying to be it. So if there's a problem, you don't, do a, you don't go to a computer, you go to the bedside. And uh, that's my, my, my timing, Gerard. Nice job. I have so many comments, but I'll be quiet. Everyone else has to too. Hold on. Say a word. Except that the Samantha Lip has started her career with Ted Polina at KP. She started her telehealth career with Ted. You'll hear about that soon. Thank you, Gerard. And next we have Terry Casterton from um, SEL. She's getting ready. It's fine, Terry. No worries. You're on mute. Now I'm not. Now you're um, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let me get my deck pulled up here. And she's, as she's doing that, by the way, the sky's the limit in terms of other people that we want to be invited. I'd like to stay focused on actual organizations that provide telehealth. That's my, that's my personal interest. But we can invite anyone you want. Anyone you want. So just say the word and send me emails and I'll have them. Perfect. All right. You following along now? Everyone? Yes. Okay. Um, so just a bit about SEL health, because I find that when I talk to people in the Denver market, um, many people don't realize that we actually cover multiple states, including Colorado and Montana. Um, and we are spread across three, I don't know if you can call them metropolitan areas in Montana, um, Billings, Butte, and Miles City on the eastern side. And that's particularly important for telehealth because those are very rural areas. 
Um, so the focus of my kind of quick share here today will be on our ambulatory work. But I do also want to mention we've been doing telehealth in some way, shape or form for about 20 years in Montana. When you go all the way back to the telephone, um, which we still use a lot of today. Um, but I'll, that's been something that, that's been at the heart of what we've done within telehealth and virtual health for quite some time. But the, the bread and butter of our metropolitan or actual metropolitan areas is around Denver, um, where we have four different hospitals that make up SEL Health, include, and then three in Montana. So within innovation and virtual health, um, our mission is to identify, initiate, and deploy ventures that improve access and experience of the people and communities we serve. And through that, we look to empower innovation throughout the entire ministry of SEL Health. Another way to look at that, the access and the experience is we want to find a patient and we want to keep a patient. And not in the traditional marketing terms, but in the, in the access side, we wanna make it easy for them to find SEL health providers and to leverage the talent that we have across our clinical pool to access care. Um, that, and we need to make it easier for them to do that. And on the keeping a patient side, we wanna create so much value for patients that they can't imagine getting their care from anyone else but SEL Health. Um, so virtual health or telehealth is certainly a big part of that access and the experience, especially over the last several months. Um, SEL Health Right Care is how we have branded our direct-to-consumer telehealth modalities. And we have three different offerings, um, or we will have three, but one launches next Tuesday. We've been live with scheduled video visits since December of 2018. And over the course of 2019, uh, worked out some kinks and brought on a handful more providers. E-visits we have been live with since February 27th of this year. So pretty perfectly timed for COVID. Um, on the scheduled video visit side, much like Gerard mentioned, we are using Epic Video integration for e-visits. We are using BrightMD, um, which is all they do. That's e-visits, that's their bread and butter. Um, and then we will be launching next available video visits next Tuesday, August 4th. So that's just a, a little bit about the services that we have up and running and that we will be launching. Um, we were going to, just a note on like how you talk about these things, we went back and forth with this third um, bucket here of next available. Do you call it next available or do you call it on demand? And our partnering up with our marketing team, we landed on the language of next available because we don't have a true on-demand model. We can't staff it 24 by seven, at least not yet. We may take baby steps in that direction. So as we move into the um, conversation part of this, that's something that I'll be looking forward to hearing more from others is what do you call these things to people who may not be familiar with them? What makes sense to the public given that it's not quite mainstream yet for everybody? Um, oh, this is the one that has the time on it. A couple of other notes here and something that I would love to hear from others is what you're doing around the cost side of it. Given that we're a not-for-profit organization and we want to minimize spend for our patients, we are doing everything in our power to um, allow them to use insurance to pay for it. And then we've also come up with a $59 flat rate fee for the non-insured of which, because we're mission-oriented, we will discount for patients who can't make that $59 payment. Um, but and but that with, with it brings a whole other mountain of work, which I know this group 
is familiar with, like how do you navigate the payer space and actually get reimbursed for these services? Um, so far, we're doing all right. We have a higher level of um, claims getting denied than we would for an in-person visit, but not so much so that it is super problematic. It's manageable. And the vast majority of those times claims are getting denied. Um, our denials team is working with payers and they're like, oh, that was a mistake on our part because things have changed so quickly. Um, the automated claims processing on the payer side isn't necessarily set up to send, you know, the GT modifiers in the place of service codes that we're sending them. So that's definitely been a, a bit of a hot spot for us, as I'm sure as it has for many others, but we'd be, love to hear from others and how they're approaching that space. Um, so pre and post COVID, you can see here what we were doing in the third quarter and fourth quarter of 2019. I don't know, it's like a pandemic hit in the first quarter because those numbers went up. Very similar picture here as to what Gerard um, showed earlier, some obvious trends. Um, and with that, we completed over 40,000 video visits over from January to June 2020. Um, which represents a 3,500% increase from 2019, which almost seems ridiculous to put a percentage on. Um, I'll also note we're, because we've spent so much time scaling, we're still getting our analytics cleaned up. This doesn't even represent our inpatient, um, kind of what you would think of as, as traditional telemedicine, our inpatient consultations that we've been doing for, for many years. Um, so as we meet moving forward, we'd, we'd love to continue to share those numbers and see how, how everyone is trending. Um, and the other way we can look at this is the provider adoption. So once again, this is our direct-to-consumer services. At the end of February 2020, we had 32 providers up doing MyChart video visits. And as of June 2020, we have 549. Um, so tremendous adoption. I also will note that we didn't do the kind of training that we usually would. So for those 32 providers represented by that left-hand circle, um, we set up simulation labs for them so they could actually do the video visit uh, for some of the things that John mentioned. You know, it's so important to learn how to like look in the video and engage with somebody and let's actually have them treat a sore throat. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What is some of the language? So um, it was time intensive, but our providers adored it. They were like, oh, I actually know how to do a video visit instead of just knowing which buttons to click. Um, however, we weren't able to do that kind of simulation lab approach for pretty obvious reasons when we were getting over 500 providers up over the course of three weeks. So we went to more web-based training. What was really interesting from that though, and it turns it into more of a Kind of cost benefit analysis is as soon as our providers had done two video visits they're like oh i got it it's no problem um there but is there is that first curve so now we're thinking how do we leverage both of these approaches since we've we've survived it we've been through it we've got some good empathy that we've done with our providers what does that look like for the next stage of phasing so or, or training excuse me so that's something we're assessing right now um, the other way we can look at this is just the overall curve of telemedicine video visits from January through July. The number has come down um, because our clinic started reopening in May. Um, so we were getting more patients in for in-person visits, which is a good thing. Um, and then the other way we can look at this is at the percentage of video visits as it compares to all visits. So come end of March, early April, 
video visits made up 50% of our ambulatory visits. And then as clinics started opening again, we could get patients in. Um, and we had some pretty specialized clinics opening that were just handling patients with COVID symptoms, others that were seeing patients that did not have COVID symptoms, but still needed a physical exam. So a lot of great work happening um, on the operational clinic side too, to get patients in for visits. And right now we've kind of leveled off at this 10% range. 10% of all of our ambulatory visits right now are video visits. And we, we hope to continue to grow that as we continue to grow the entire pool of visits. We're about 90% right now of what we were seeing um, pre-COVID in the ambulatory setting. So some hopefully some growth happening there um, to get back towards 100 in the months in months to come. So some wins along the way. Um, I'll start with the first, which is luck. Uh, we already had, oh, okay. Then I'm, I'm, gosh, I can never get through it in time. You don't have to step right the second, just be aware. Yeah, okay. So luck, we had a foundation in place to grow video visits. So we had something to move, to move on. Um, we weren't one of the healthcare systems that was caught, caught flat-footed. Uh, provider efficiency. Our providers are tearing down those e-visits like nobody's business. They are able to get through them now. Our provider doing the most of them can do them in a minute and 37 seconds, which is huge when we look at where we're, telehealth really brings that value, which is reducing the cost of care. If providers can treat efficiently and high, with a high quality um, tool set under their belt, then that helps serve the triple aim. Patient satisfaction, um, on average, our 98% of patients indicate they would do another virtual visit, and we've got a 90% thumbs up approval rating for e-visits as well, which, especially on the video visit side, is kind of funny because we've had a lot of technical barriers to break down, but they don't seem to mind that much so long as they can access care. Um, systems and structures, this is another win. Um, we have figured out what that value chain looks like. We call it the Big Mac. What are all of those things that make up this hamburger, which is a video visit? And we've brought people together across all of those columns, all of those primary activities in order to be able to deliver virtual health in a seamless and quick fashion. So just getting that governance together and establishing how we all communicate in order to get providers up and running on video visits has been a huge win. Perry, I'm gonna ask you to wrap it up. Um, yep. Make your final comments, otherwise we're not gonna have time for discussion. Yep, totally. Opportunities, keeping up with the ever-changing landscape. I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out right now. And then I already mentioned this a little bit. How do we direct patients to the appropriate service for their needs? How do we get them speak? How do we speak the same language as them? Because right now we are not. All right. I was a little bit more loquacious than I thought. It's Friday. No problem. Great job. <laughs> and now it is my turn. So um, somebody can make sure that I take only five minutes because um, because Ted gets five minutes and I get five minutes. Okay, so as I said, I retired from Kaiser Permanente three years ago as director of virtual care. And um, as you can see, come on computer. Okay. Um, we have a whole bunch of stuff called virtual care and to Terry's last comment, you'll see this on the next slide. I only have this and one more slide. Um, by the time I left, I felt like I was the director of random care. Honest to goodness. And I still feel this way about telehealth in general of 
We have so many different options and doctors know some of it and not others. Patients know some of it, not others. They choose to use it as much based on their co-pays as anything else. And that's why I'm so passionate about, we got to stop, start measuring stuff and figuring out what we encourage, what we allow, what we don't allow for what kinds of things. I'm really passionate about that. So I joined Kaiser Permanente in 1999. And I talked to Ted today. He's been there five years longer than I have been there. Um, we have been doing emails with your physician. So I use your versus A. In general, the stuff with your physician or your therapist or your nurse is scheduled. In general, the stuff with a doc or a nurse is um, on demand or not scheduled. Um, so we, we've been doing emails with your doc since 1998. Um, we've been doing telephone visits. Ted told me for probably 10 years longer than that, scheduled telephone visits 30 years way before me. I've been involved with all the rest of this stuff. Um, I implemented video visits starting in, I found this on my home computer, my home office. Can you see what it says? So it says KPCO Telemedicine started here in 2010. EVSS was first video visit site to site where patients would come in to um, convenient primary care locations and get specialty care. We did endocrinology, allergy, and one other that I'm forgetting. Um, I can't remember. And it was a pilot. Eventually, we moved to BBSA, which was the big one, which is what you're all talking about. Video visit site to anywhere where a doc, et cetera, is at a Kaiser Permanente facility and a patient is anywhere, in state, but anywhere. Um, I wanted to do BBAA. We're not there yet where we can stop building so many buildings and lower the cost of healthcare. Doctors and everyone else can practice from anywhere and patients can be anywhere, but not there yet. RTVC was also a pilot real-time virtual consults, where we specifically especially did it in dermatology, on-demand dermatologists, so they set aside time, which is why it never worked, could join a primary care regular in-person scheduled visit on-demand from the primary care docs. We trained all the primary care docs and, and all the dermatologists were trained, and it didn't work financially because we couldn't have a dermatologist available 20, um, all the hours that we were open. But BVSA, site to anywhere, is what most of you are talking about. I was involved at the national level and local level with the implementation of remote monitoring. Um, I was not involved with the implementation, but it was part of, it was under my umbrella. We've had secure texting maybe for four or five years. It's humongous. My hypothesis, it's probably overused. It was started by ED docs. They thought it would decrease ED visits. It did not, but it has definitely, the patient satisfaction actually is enormously high for all of these, and you'll see, Ted will show you the volumes of that soon. Um, we did pilots in social media, pilots in mobile apps, just because we don't have enough time, I won't go over it. I love those pilots. It didn't go anywhere, and I could teach you all about that someday. Um, my final slide, my learnings. Can you believe this? In the year 2015, we trained 1,000 physicians, PAs, APNs, and certified nurse midwives, one-on-one -on -one for 30 to 40 minutes, um, by the business managers of the medical group, had 30 minutes, 1,000 of these people. By the end of the following year, 7-0 had done at least one video visit. I'll say that again. 1,000 were trained for half an hour. They were each added a $200 webcam. This is in 2015. And by the following year, 70 had done some. Don't do that. Don't do what I did. Don't train all these people one-on-one -on -one and give them these webcams when most of them won't do it. This is pre-COVID. That's going to talk COVID.
um, because um, the docs are not excited about this because all kinds of reasons. One, it's another thing to learn to do. Two is they were trained to be in person with people. I'm a physical therapist. I want to touch people. That's what I learned to do. Um, the urologist, someone said the erectile dysfunction, absolutely, you could do that by video. We don't touch peaceful people. Other urologists said we might, we might miss cancer. I, I'm not a doctor. I don't get to tell them. And I will just point out to you, the reimbursement had nothing to do with our low volumes because our doctors are salaried. The bonus is based on clinical outcomes and patient satisfaction. So even a thousand physicians, nothing to do with reimbursement, not excited. Obviously, you can't count on the patient bandwidth. And I will point out to you, this is wild. I don't know if you remember this, Ted. When we initially started, we required every patient who had a scheduled video visit first to have a scheduled um, visit with a IT person, a national IT person, every single one. Um, there's pros and cons to that. Obviously, we didn't want to waste doctor's time. It's not working, but um, I would definitely look at that again. Eventually, we said to the people scheduling, if you want to schedule these practice visits, it's fine. If you don't want to, fine. Um, and my final thing is, uh, we have got to figure out how to make this. People are seeing you in person for the right type and email for the right type and not emailing doctors 10 times a day and chatting or texting with doctors 20 times a day. My thoughts. So, Ted, you have the floor. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen here now. Um, hopefully you can see my slides. And there seems to be some background conversation going on. Um, so tell me when my slides are up. Still can't see them yet, Ted. Hmm. And if you want me to bring them up, I can. Well, I don't know. It shows it's sharing on my end, but I don't know why it's not sharing. Let's try. It always cracks me up when we have um, when we have all these IT experts and things don't work technologically. Here it comes. All right. I don't know why that took so long. Sorry about that. Your turn. Um, so I am um, Ted Pauline. I'm, uh, like I said, an introduction. I'm in, uh, an internist, but I'm also a, a senior investigator for, at, in our Institute for Health Research, which just means senior investigator. I've just been around a long time. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about our experience, and it's very similar to what has been shared uh, about our huge increase in virtual care. And what I'm gonna say is virtual care is, I'll talk about the modalities, it's more than just video visits. It involves a lot of other modalities of virtual care. But we went from about 10 to 15% of all of our encounters being virtual of some modality to 70 to 90% within one week in that first week of March when we instituted what was called a virtual first initiative. So um, in, in that first six weeks, uh, we had nearly 20,000 virtual encounters. Uh, and 60% of these encounters were members, our members were new to virtual care. They had never done a virtual care visit before. And we also have what we call e-consults. And these are referrals from primary care 
to specialty care. So that's an order within our EMR where we can send an order to specialty care to, to give advice and route that message back to the primary care. Well, when COVID hit, one third of those specialty care consults were taken ownership by the specialists themselves and they conducted the virtual visit to unload some of that uh, rush of care from the primary care. So we saw this conversion of an advice type visit to an actual virtual care visit by the specialist. And so when I talk about virtual care, we have many modalities. So chat is a secure texting messaging system between a patient and a physician. Obviously, unscheduled and scheduled phone visits, the video visits that we're talking about, email communication, and it, again, this is secure email between patients and the physician primary care team, e-visits, which are handled by nurses, and then there's a plethora of other kp.org type virtual care, and this is kp.org is the patient portal, and just this week, we launched on-demand video visits. Uh, so they aren't even scheduled, they can be on demand uh, with primary care uh, and ED physicians doing the, the fielding of those. So in, since COVID hit, this is our volumes, over 80,000 of those secure emails, and this is per week, 80,000 to the, the, the primary care team of that, of that patient. Over 15,000 phone visions with, with the physician, the primary care physician. Over 10,000 of these secure texting chat sessions per week. Uh, 2,500 scheduled video visits with the primary care doc. Over 1,500 un, unscheduled phone visits with, our, uh, with whoever is on call, a doc in our call center and over uh, 500 per week with the, with the nurse. And our office visits decreased from 40,000 per week prior to COVID to 5,000 per week because we've offloaded it to all these other virtual care modalities. 80% um, of all of our visits were some virtual modality at the height of the pandemic in mid to late March. With reopening of our clinics now, uh, we see still 50 to 60% of all of our counters are some kind of virtual modality. And if we lack, look at who uses our virtual care, um, here's an age breakdown for our virtual care users compared to our, our membership at large. Uh, virtual users are a little bit younger than our membership at our, uh, a lot more females using it, um, more, more whites, Caucasians, than our membership at large. Um, so that just gives a, a flavor of, of our, who's using it compared to our overall membership. And pre-COVID, we had high virtual care member satisfaction. Uh, a couple of studies done at KP Northern California showed in, a nine, in the high 80s, low 90% satisfaction with 
uh, doing virtual care. And most of this study was video visits. So by and large, all of this was video visits. Notice this pre-COVID, 41% actually preferred in per, uh, per, preferred in-person care, meaning, uh, you know, we had a huge amount that would like the convenience of, of virtual care. Post-COVID, our video experience providers the providers and value of the care, it's huge. This is comparing April of this year and May of this year. You know, again, 80% plus uh, satisfaction with uh, the provider care, access to care, huge, you know, very high uh, um, satisfaction with access to care and appointment functionality actually much better on these virtual care venues than it is waiting in the waiting room for an in-person visit, which is not, which is, whoops, which is not to be unexpected. Um, I would concur with what other people say too, that since we have so many modalities of virtual care, we're trying to figure out what is the best mix for what purposes. If I was to ask what was the purpose of virtual care a year ago, uh, most of our operational leaderships would, would have said to substitute for uh, in-person care. Let's decrease, decrease the cost and see if we can't substitute care. Now I would say it's more how do we, it's a complement to care. How do we use virtual care to direct patients to the correct, correct venue for the right care at the right time? What's the, per, what's the optimal mix of in-person to virtual care? How can virtual care be used for chronic disease management besides just acute care management? And so we've got this huge, uh, several research projects going on to look at how do we develop this. And the other thing that we've, are, I'm involved in a research project to look at how virtual care during the pandemic has um, influence the delay of care. So which members are, you know, we're way behind on immunizations because patients put off care. Uh, how about chronic disease management for diabetes, asthma, congestive heart failure, uh, hypertension? Are, are those, are we on, on track for that? Uh, again, a lot of research going on in this area. So I'm gonna stop there so we have time for questions. Okay, so it is wide open. I will not facilitate anymore. I would love to say to the people that did not get to present, I would love for them to get some words in edgewise and maybe they can start the questions. But anybody who wants to talk, talk. The only reason I'll get involved is if everybody's talking at once and we need someone to say, okay, you talk, now you talk, you talk. What would you like to talk about? Nobody wants to talk about anything? I'll make a comment. Yes, please do. <laughs> Just, so Terry mentioned about, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Terry, that about most of your visits are currently phone visits. Is that correct? Oh, no. Um, I was just making reference to going way back, like what telemedicine started. That's okay. a big part of our history. We are we are doing phone visits though and billing for them as video visits okay. under the guise of some of the emergency um, waivers right. that have been put out there. 
So, so just melding some of the different conversations that have gone on here. Um, so what I have found is that there has been a direct correlation between video visits and patient satisfaction. And obviously that you know allows for eye contact and more of an in-person uh, evaluation. So there's a lot of discussion in the state about what do we do in rural areas. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of chat and phone where there is no video available, the bandwidth's not available, but I didn't, I misinterpreted your, your slide there, but I, I'm definitely finding that as far as patient satisfaction goes, which, which Ted just relayed to, that video visits are a high satisfier. And Jan, I know you have your opinion about patient satisfaction in certain arenas. But um, uh, it, again, just a comment that I have found as, as a physician, a clear benefit in uh, the both the exam and patient satisfaction with by providing video visits. Um, so I would, you know, we should push towards making sure that broadband's accessible throughout the region so that we can make this as close to an in-person visit as possible. So that's really interesting. This is Ted. It's really interesting what you say, because just hot off the press, Kaiser did a survey of patients who had video visits and in-person visits. And if there was no technical problems with the video visit, as, you, as everybody has alluded to, there's always some technical problems. So if the audio and video was good, the satisfaction with the video visit over an in-person visit was 22 percentage point higher. Ed, and part of that is because what's the copay difference? Well, yeah, and in Kaiser right now, we're not charging anything for yeah, any of for these virtual care, for any of the virtual care modalities, chat, email, video visit, uh, e-visit, all of them are free to the patient. They're part of the, the cost of uh, their membership in Kaiser. There is discussions going on about what should be charged or does they stay free, but it's just rolled into their premium. So all of this is under discussion, but currently, it's all free to the patient. So imagine that, that they like it better. I should say, hey, we, imagine that. Hey, yeah, it was interesting that the AAP, I remember it was 2019 or something, they came out with a rule saying you shouldn't do that. And I thought, why? And of course, Kaiser can do that. And I'm jealous of said things. Um, but I was, I was surprised that the AAP came out with a policy statement saying that you should not waive co-pays for telemedicine to encourage it. I mean, it. Well, Gerard, um, I'm fairly passionate about this, like I am about everything. In my, and I've been saying this five years ago, I said this, when I was director of virtual care, but they would change the benefits. I believe that people should pay co-pays based on the um, relative amount of time spent with the doctor. So I'm not saying we should per minute, it should be X number of dollars per minute. I believe we should pay, they should pay the highest copay for in-person, next highest for video, next highest for phone, next highest for email. I don't know about chat. And even for HMO patients for email, give us 10 emails free per year or per day or per month or whatever. And after that, a dollar in email. I believe that we patients should pay something for every time we see a, I'm saying doctor. I, I really believe strongly in that, but KP didn't want to do that yet. Yeah. I like not out of pocket healthcare, <laughs> but um, I understand what you're saying. P uh, pediatrics is is different, I think, also, and that's why the AAP came out with a specific statement around that. 
Um, also recognizing for the group that um, my group mostly has to deal with Medicaid, which has passed in the state legislature uh, to make a lot of those rules permanent while Medicare is still going through and hopefully get something on the federal level. Well, it's really interesting, the whole debate about do people value, quote unquote, the free care or do they value a copay visit more? I mean, there's still that debate going on. I, I know when I do medical missions in third world countries and, you know, this is charity care with my church going down there working with indigenous uh, docs in third world countries. When I first started doing this 20 years ago, uh the doc would charge a nominal fee for these free clinics, essentially. And yet I asked about that and he said, well, if you don't charge these people something, they don't value the care we provide. And it's nominal, it's pennies. You know, and it, if it was the same to us, it would, it's like two cents to, to come and see a, uh, a physician in these clinics in these rural, uh, rural villages. But so there is that debate. What is, is free care valued more than if I have to pay for it. And Ted, talk a little bit, when you practice medicine full time, talk a little bit about the volumes of emails you got with, because of no COVID. Well, you know, emails are, some, some patients are just overusing it. They're, they're, it's, you can get, there's examples of patients sending five emails a day or, you know, 30 a month. So every day they're sell, sending emails. Of course, other members don't send any emails ever, but there's the frequent flyers that just inundate the primary care in basket. Uh, we did a study showing that uh, somewhere between uh, 30 to 40% of emails could be redirected out of a primary care in basket to, because they ask about medication side effects. Well, have a clinical pharmacist deal with it. Or they ask about administrative issues. What, how about my bill and that? We'll send it to the administrative in-basket. Unload those from the primary care docs in-basket. So that, it is a big problem. And also we see, we're offering, as you see, we're offering all these virtual care modalities. Well, they're not used exclusively, some patients use all of them for the same issue. So how do we you know, reduce this duplicative of services and try to uh, streamline care? Because people see it, I mean, it's a subset of patients that use, use every model. Dan, I think you could have a whole hour conversation just based on the various telehealth virtual business models and then the fee structure associated both from the payer side, provider side, and the patient side, especially when you're dealing with this mixed crowd, you've got healthcare systems that are going to non-affiliated sites, and that's a whole different business model. And we haven't even touched on compliance, legal, and oversight with uh, physician compensation. And then you pay them on top of it to be on call for telehealth, and you get an FMV, fair market value, to determine how much you're going to pay for your uh, employed provider versus your contracted provider. So I think it's been a great forum last hour. Thank you. Who else have we not heard from? Mike, Jennifer, Laura? We just wanted yeah, you to get a word in advice. Yeah, it, it's Mike. I want to pose a question to anybody who wants to answer it, presenter or not presenter. Um, but I'm curious in the perspective of um, what you all, uh, what will be the most important thing that you work on in the next six months in preparation for a potential resurgence? 
And then what will be the most important thing coming out of this, let's say a year, year and a half from now, when vaccines are out and, and we're past this, uh, what will be the most important thing coming out of this so that uh, we are better prepared for whatever the, the next thing is? I can take a stab at that, Mike. Um, most important thing as we prepare for the next likely resurgence is getting our on-demand services streamlined. And that's not just about standing up the, the front end, but um, make, so we have providers who are underutilized right now and figuring out how we can pull them together in a slick operating and clinical model so that we've got coverage to prepare. So finding that balance between what we anticipate the demand is and where we have primary care providers who have time. And then beyond that, um, that's a new normal, right? Trying to anticipate what that new normal of virtual care will look like, how much demand will there be, how do we, how do we organize the supply and our talent of physician and provider pools, and then culminating all of that into a digital front door. So whether a patient needs virtual care or whether they need to pay their bill, it's really simple to navigate across SEL Health to be able to access all of the virtual care offerings. So that digital front door will be the next big push for us. You know, I'd like to comment that um, we could probably help you guys. When I say we, KP, Ted, or I, or lots of other people, probably not Jennifer and Mike on this one as much, um, on on-demand care challenges. And I could probably, again, teach you more things that I wouldn't do that I did. And not, but we've we've had a lot of experience over the last five-ish years. You know, Ted said we started it. Well, we started it five years ago, also, and then it went down, and then it went up. So it's a big challenge. And again, I'm happy to. When I say advise you, I don't mean for money. I mean just a phone call. There's anything I can do to help. Yeah, as we're pulling together our operating teams, I will get a call together with you so we can do a little lessons learned event. Sure. I have again so many things to say that I would never do it again if I started. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Do you remember, Ted? So, we trained every doc. Do you remember? We added each of you. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. But to answer Mike's second question about in the future, um, I, I really am intrigued by what several people are, have talked about is there's an FCC grant Children's is working on for getting home monitoring stuff going. The, the rural Medicaid stuff of, and, the, and, the, and the homeless nurse, the nurse that's dealing with the homeless people with a kind of a backpack mobile tele thing. I would love to partner with anybody or everybody who would be looking at creating a, a what I would call is a home, uh, a home smartphone medical kit so that you could, it could be, it could be digital stethoscopes, uh, 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 thermometers, otoscopes, whatever. So when you went and bought your smartphone, you could also the, buy a medical home monitoring kit that would go with your smartphone that would hook up to do this. Because that is one of the hurdles we have is since we can't do hands-on, we're going to have to get as much information from the patient as possible and teach them how to be their own vitals taker, their own uh, exam uh, person, and get that information so that we can enhance those video visits. So I would love to discuss that whole area with people uh, as we go forward. And Jonathan, you're nodding your head. I'm, I'm sure you're on board with something like that. 
I, I would love to talk to you. I could, we could probably spend hours talking about that or days. So I'm happy to talk. It is one o'clock. And again, you're getting to know me. I believe in starting meetings on time and ending meetings on time. I will reach out to everybody by email to get your feedback, what you liked, what you didn't like, what we, what we did today. What I propose for the next meeting is going to be measurements. And I will absolutely say to each of you, maybe we'll take turns deciding what the next meeting will be about. I can still facilitate or not. You guys can facilitate. We can figure out where we go from here. I'm seeing a lot of messages saying I need to go. I look forward to the next call. So I'm guessing we're going to keep doing this. And um, watch my email and see you all next month. Thanks, Jan. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thanks, Jan. You're welcome. I had so much fun. Yeah. Sorry I didn't get a it word in there. What? It was very interesting. I did want to say your hair looks fabulous. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, now that I just I have want to interrupt the meeting and say how, how well your hair looks. <laughs> so, um, again, I'm about to work for you for pay. Everybody else is off. We're the only three left. Any feedback? Anything you would have done differently? Was I too um, structured? I, I thought it was great. Like I said, I missed, I was dual tasking the first no like 15 minutes. So, but I mean, I thought, I mean, it really went well. Okay. And I like the, you know, short presentations, time for questions and feedback, some good stuff in the chat as well. So yeah, I thought it was good. Well, one of the things, even Chris probably doesn't know this about me. I take negative feedback or constructive feedback extraordinarily well. I really, really, really do. Like if you say next time, please don't do this or it would have been better. It's honoring to, even, I'm saying for the future. I am really good at taking feedback. So if there's ever anything I do or I'm not doing that you want me to do differently, say the word and I will take it with honor. Yeah, no, Excellent. this is great though. Good start. All right, so what I'm thinking about doing, I'll, I have another call actually, another Zoom thing, um, is for the next one, have you guys present, and you can take longer if you want, just the way Tori did today for TMT. So I'll start the meeting off. We won't do one-on-one -on -one introductions again, but um, and then you guys can have five or ten minutes or whatever you want to talk about what you want. Glad to. I'm thinking I might suggest to everyone, I'll send an email to everyone saying, suppose we do it the same time every month, today's Friday, uh, the whatever Friday of the month at this time, and we'll see if that works. It's probably so, good, yeah. So be one consistent. of the things that we have to do, Jan, is we have to um, record this into our... Um, oh, we're still recording. recording. Let me stop recording.